Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, November 7th, and we're breaking down the latest in auto industry news. I'm your host, Nick Seifel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Auto Analyst, John Rosevere via Skype. How's it going, John? It's going great, Nick. How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, there's a big college football game on Saturday, Alabama LSU, one versus number two. Uh, so I'm a little nervous, but uh, but <laughs> I'm excited to do the show here here with you today. I think we think we'll have a great show. Uh, you know, it's been kind of a crazy year in auto news. We saw our first nationwide strike in the better part of a decade. Big global mergers being announced at the same time. The entire industry is undergoing this huge generational shift in technology to EVs, autonomous driving, all those sorts of things. And we're going to get into that. Uh, a little bit later on the show. But first off, the auto industry is notoriously cyclical as a business, and we've seen a number of companies already report their earnings uh, you know, earlier this month. Uh, what have those recent earnings reports told us about the state of the current global auto industry today? Well, first of all, let's back up in some context. I mean, we all remember the recession of 2008, 2009, and auto sales came out of that and rose to this big plateau uh, where they've stayed fairly close to with some erosion, but not a lot of erosion, uh, over the last few years. And so this is a, uh, the takeaway here is this is a very long cycle uh, by historical standards. It's not, you know, headed sharply downward yet, but, um, you know, we're all wondering when that's going to happen. And and depending on who you ask, there are some signs emerging. I know, I know Volkswagen uh, in their guidance said that they were, they were expecting uh, slowdowns in several parts of the world going into the end of the year and into 2020. Uh, they've done fairly well in China despite a significant market correction going on there in, in mass market automotive. Um, in part, that's because luxury has remained somewhat stronger and, and Volkswagen's Audi brand is among the leaders in out in luxury in China, uh, but there are you know there there are worries about Europe. Uh, there are fewer worries about the United States, but still you know I, I mean if if the overall economy here starts to slip, you know as soon as con- consumer confidence starts to fall, auto sales fall as well. People don't buy new cars if they think they might have to. Uh, you know, go job hunting in a year, and and companies don't buy new cars if they think profits are going to shrink. So, um, you know, we're all watching for signs of it. Uh, VW did did say they do expect. I mean, that that's sort of official guidance from them. Uh, Fiat Chrysler uh, gave guidance where they said they think their profits will be up a little bit next year from this year, but sort of steady as she goes. I, much of their um, Operating profit is driven by trucks and SUVs in North America. So that's that's more than anything else. That's a statement of confidence uh, that the U.S. market still has some life in it. I, so so it's kind of a mixed picture. Um, certainly, nobody's expecting boom times anytime soon. Um, you, know, you know, a downturn is is inevitable. History teaches us uh, there are a few signs of it in some places and not so much in other places. Uh, but you know, if you're thinking of buying auto stocks late in the cycle, it, it, when is not traditionally the time to buy auto stocks. But sure, <laughs> you know, there may be bargains out there, <laughs> and, and and maybe maybe some of those those manifestations of concerns, at least from management's point of view, as it comes to the cycle, has been behind a little bit of what we saw earlier this quarter, earlier in the fa- the past few months, uh, the UAW's uh, strike against against GM. Uh, you know, as I said earlier off the top of the show, that's the first national strike we'd seen for the better part of a decade. 
uh, lasted 40 days, so September 16th to October 25th, which very, very long uh, uh, for a strike. So a national strike at all is abnormal, and then one for to extend over this long of a period, uh, obviously very significant. Uh, how is GM holding up after the stoppage, and, and what are things looking like in relations between the company and the UAW today? Well, GM said um, that the strike cost it. They they expect the strike to cost it something like three billion dollars. Uh, in the in the third quarter, uh, it cost them fifty two cents a share in adjusted earnings. It cost them about four hundred million dollars in in cash flow. Uh, you know, it cost them about three point three billion in revenue in North America because of of the. They book revenue when they ship vehicles to dealers, and if the plants are shut down, they're not shipping vehicles to dealers. They think they can make up some of that production by year end, but but um, they did uh, sort of ratchet down their guidance for the full year, um, saying everything else is on track, but they you know the the hole in our revenue generated by this strike is going to bring everything down. Uh, that was not unexpected. I, I think everybody um, on balance, GM's earnings report was positive under the conditions. Um, but yeah, but but then you know what did they get for that? Uh, you, you know, you look at the deal that they cut with the UAW, which has been approved by workers, um, and the UAW got almost everything it wanted except the really big thing. Uh, <laughs> is probably the best way to put it. Uh, GM wanted to close some factories. Uh, GM needed to close some factories. The workers, of course, don't like that. They don't want factories to close. Uh, the workers also wanted. Um, you know, a shorter track from entry level to the top wage. They wanted uh, a path for contractors to become full-time employees. They wanted to hold the line on their contribution to healthcare costs, things like that. They got all that. Uh, GM gets to close the factories. So, you know, if we step back and say, who won? Well, you know, everybody kind of won. Um, it was worth it for GM to do this probably in long term, but it hurts in the short term. So I guess uh, GM's long-term costs of having to maintain these factories, they're, they're, able to, they're able to get rid of those in exchange for giving the union those, those higher, higher wages they wanted. And I, be, I believe that the particular sticking point was healthcare costs, where uh, the union were paying well below market. GM wanted to push those up uh, you know, more closer to what you know, uh, the, the typical worker would pay, but those are still, still well below uh, the rest of the market. As we look to these other major U.S. automakers, I think Ford is currently at the table with UAW. Do we get any signals from this deal as to uh, what deals will look like with the other automakers, and I guess how much leverage uh, uh, the industry may have over over you know the labor? Well, we know what Ford's Ford has a tentative deal, which is to say uh, Ford and the UAW leadership agreed on it, and it's now out for vote uh, to workers. Um, and you know they get a simple majority of workers. Uh, both regular hourly workers and what they call skilled trades, which are people like welders that are paid on a little different, higher scale. Uh, if they get a simple majority of both of those groups, the thing passes. Uh, and and Ford, uh, you know, Ford has always had a somewhat more, not always, but in recent decades has had a somewhat more cordial relationship with the UAW than GM and Chrysler, uh, which is just sort of Ford style to some extent. I mean, Ford is aware that... Uh, the UAW sacrifices helped them avoid bankruptcy during the 2008-2009 downturn, and Bill Ford says that frequently. Bill Ford is the chairman of the board, um, and 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 so, I, you know, we didn't expect uh, once once 
the GM thing wrapped up and, and the UAW turned its attention to completing the Ford deal. We did not expect great rancor. And sure enough, it only took a few days. And they came out with a deal that looks a lot like GM's, except that Ford isn't really looking to close factories. There is one factory that will close. It's a small engine factory in Michigan. Um, and they plan to offer every worker there either a, a retirement-style buyout um, or a new job in another plant that is just 15 miles away. So it's not the significant disruption that we've seen with GM, you know, closing a factory that at one time it employed like 5,000 people in Ohio and is now just gone. Um, this is a much smaller thing. Uh, my sense is that the deal will probably pass. There is some grumbling, of course, uh, you know, there are always people who want more, but uh, it does roughly follow the pattern of the GM deal otherwise. Yeah, we've seen also from Ford recently interesting news when it comes to their EV strategy. They have touted, uh, you know, announcing a, a nationwide EV charging network as well as a partnership with Amazon related to EV charging. What have we learned about, I guess, Ford's broader strategy when it comes to EVs and how are they building the company for the future? Well, Ford is laying a lot of groundwork ahead of something it's going to do later this month where it drops its long awaited Mustang inspired. Uh, electric high performance crossover. <laughs> Followed all that. That's a mouthful. Uh, it, yeah. yeah, yeah, no. I, I, I mean, basically, it's it's think of the Jaguar I Pace, and now think of that um, with sort of aggressive Mustang inspired styling, uh, and and very very good acceleration uh, as an electric vehicle. And this will be their first long range electric vehicle. They are promising uh, they, that at least with an optional battery pack, you'll be able to get uh, 300 miles of range or more. Um, we don't know pricing. We don't know anything like that yet, but I expect it to be uh, more mainstream than a, a high end product, uh, given the amount of effort they're putting into things like the charging network and so forth. Uh, th this is this is the first of a series of electric Fords that will come out. And Ford's whole strategy around this is to not just roll out, you know, here's a nice electric version of the Fusion or the Explorer or whatever. It's, it's to use uh, battery electric vehicle technology to bring unique advantages. This is how they're going to sell it to their customer base, who, of course, are, are somewhat skeptical about all this. Um, but you know, you come out, they show this, you know, we're making an electric SUV. Great. Well, you know, it'll out accelerate our fastest Mustang or whatever. I don't know that that's true, but it'll be very, very quick off the line. Um, and presumably, uh, as easy to use as they can make it and, and, you know, as aggressively priced as they can manage. And then, you know, we'll see after that, they have an electric F-150 in the works. I expect it will have monster towing capacity. Uh, they have uh, at the Specialty Equipment Manufacturers Association show, which is uh, about custom cars and parts for custom cars. Uh, Ford showed off uh, an electric Mustang it had built with a supplier, uh, Webasto, uh, with something like a thousand horsepower, and in an interesting twist, a six-speed manual transmission. Uh, most electric vehicles use one-speed, single-speed transmissions. It's, it's just simple and effective. You put the thing and drive and go. Uh, but this was an interesting twist uh, and shows that Ford is thinking about how might we do an electric Mustang and what might it look like. And this is pretty obviously a trial balloon. And, and so far, uh, enthusiast response has been, hey, I want to try that. <laughs> so, so they may be onto something. So you may see an electric Mustang at some point. Uh, they do have a number of electric vehicles in the work. We know they're also working on electric commercial vans and so forth. Uh, you know, near term to meet um, tightening European regulations on emissions. 
uh, but also longer term, they think this is this is where the business needs to go. And and you know, former CEO Mark Fields told me a few years ago that Ford is thinking in terms of how do we lead our customers to electric vehicles. And so this is how they're going to do it. They're going to be fast. They're going to be sexy. The trucks will have, uh, you know, huge um, capabilities. They. The, the commercial vans will offer low total cost of ownership. You know, they'll use they'll use electric vehicle technology, not just as look, we're driving an electric vehicle, but but uh, to augment the specific selling points of different types of products and different segments of the market. That's their whole strategy. Um, they aren't going to be first. They aren't necessarily going to have the highest thing, but I predict they'll do pretty well. Ford, um, more so than some automakers, knows its customers really well. Yeah, and we've talked about in the past on this show uh, how Ford and VW have kind of cozied up a little bit when it comes to EVs, when it comes to autonomy. Are we seeing that continue to play out? And it, th- th- their strategies, as you describe them, sound sound very similar to how VW is kind of approaching what they're trying to do uh, on the EV side. Yeah, well, EV wants to VW rather wants to sell EVs to everybody, uh, or at least everybody you know it it can convince to buy one. Uh, they're looking at huge volumes, uh, mass market. Uh, you know, this ID three that they are they are just now moving into pre production uh, that they expect expect to begin shipping next year. Uh, you know, if you squint, it's an electric Golf, and the Golf is of course their you know their European mainstay car. Uh, it, it, it's sort of the signature VW now. Um, you know, the partnership with Ford uh, is interesting. What it gives Ford is a way to get probably an electric commercial van out to market in Europe pretty quickly using VW's architecture. Um, you know, maybe before they can get a, a homegrown version ready, they can do this. They can get it out. Uh, you know, it helps them quickly get into compliance in Europe. Um, it, it, get, it starts to establish a market that they can back up with. You know, they're they're commercial fleet expertise, their commercial fleet service, and so forth, uh, and their own technology in terms of connectivity, which is another big thing Ford is working on right now, uh, w- which will be of great interest to commercial fleets and so forth, knowing where all your vans are and how much you know, how much fuel they're using, how much charge they're using, all this kind of stuff. Uh, so there is that side. On the self-driving side, of course, VW needed some help in jumping into Argo AI was, was a good move for them. Um, and, and, you know, it brings Argo AI some more money and it brings uh, more scale to the program because it, it, in ways that probably won't bump into each other too aggressively uh, outside of Europe um, with respect to, you know, I mean, Ford is obviously very, very strong in North America and VW is obviously very, very strong in Europe. VW is much stronger than Ford in China. Um, it will be interesting to see how this plays out in terms of deployment to the extent they're competing with each other. But but Argo's program is fairly advanced, and, and for VW to get in on that was a good deal. And for Ford, using VW's platform to, to get a commercial vehicle, an electric commercial vehicle out in Europe quickly where they, the regulations are tightening rapidly, uh, is also a good deal. We don't know exactly how much money is changing hands, but, but on, on paper it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, along those themes of kind of getting in compliance with regulation, big, you know, across the Atlantic partnerships among automakers. I want to talk a little <laughs> bit about uh, a little bit about uh, Fiat Chrysler. You like that transition there? Uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, Fiat Chrysler. 
Uh, last time we talked about them, they had a proposed merger uh, with Renault, trying to gain scale, gain some entry into EVs there. But that was uh, didn't quite work out, partially due to, to opposition from the French government. However, uh, the most recent news out of Fiat Chrysler is that it's exploring a merger with another French auto company, Peugeot. Uh, what do we know about that merger so far when it comes to Fiat Chrysler? It's probably going to happen. There you go. <laughs> uh, no, it's probably going to happen. I mean, they've, they've signed a deal uh, basically to figure things out as quickly as possible. That could become a, former de- a formal deal uh, that would go to shareholders and regulators and so forth uh, really within a few weeks. Um, there, there was talk that they could have this really moving by the end of the year. Not done, but really moving. Um, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Peugeot, uh, Carlos Tavares is the CEO of Peugeot. He's he's a bright leader. He's had a lot of success with Peugeot. But Peugeot has a, a sort of structural problem, which is that it's heavily concentrated in Europe. And Europe's market is, is mature. Uh, it is very low growth. Uh, there's a lot of competitive pressure, which, which doesn't help margins any. Um, and really, the only areas of growth are SUVs, uh, which is not an area in which Peugeot is traditionally strong. Peugeot would love to have more of a presence in the United States. Uh, FCA is is obviously uh, making a lot of money in the United States from trucks and Jeeps. Uh, They have SUVs that they could bring to Europe uh, in higher quantity. Um, They have an SUV brand that could be adapted to um, highly efficient Peugeot platforms and so forth and, and used to generate sales and share in Europe. Uh, you know, it, it fit, they fit together in a lot of different ways that seem to make sense. Um, and, and word about the French government anyway, is that they, they favor this deal over an FCA Renault deal for various reasons. Um, not all of which I'm clear on right now, but the French government does not appear to be, um, a likely obstacle here. Uh, they will of course have to, um, deal with, uh, the Italian government, uh, Fiat's traditional home, the German government, because uh, Peugeot owns Opel, uh, the long time, the German automaker that was a, a GM subsidiary for many, many years. They bought Opel, uh, and and uh, you know the German unions are very powerful, and 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 so forth, and and the state has an investment there as well. Uh, they they may also have to deal with uh, concern in the United States because Peugeot has a Chinese investor and that could be sensitive right now. Um, but my bet is that this goes forward pretty much as planned as a quote unquote 50-50 merger of equals. Um, Carlos Tavares, Peugeot's CEO, will be CEO of the combined company. John Elkan, who represents the Agnelli family that owned Fiat for decades, uh, will be the chairman. Uh, Peugeot gets one more seat on the board than FCA. I think it's six and five for an 11 person board. Uh, but, but John Elkan will be chairman, but that was how they uh, sort of, you know, split the difference on it. Um, what's going to happen in terms of factories and workers and product and so forth. We don't really know yet. John, what is driving the urgency here from Fiat Chrysler? Obviously, we had this deal, you know, less than six months ago with Renault, and then we've got another deal following up here here with Peugeot. It seems to be a, a very much a, a priority uh, of the management of the company to get a merger of this kind done. What, what's driving that urgency? Uh, well, uh, Sergio Marchionne, who was CEO for years and passed away last year, uh, felt for years that the auto industry needed to consolidate. There were too many factories, uh, and the factories. There were too many factories that weren't making enough vehicles to be strongly profitable. Uh, 
the old rule of thumb in the auto industry is that an auto factory breaks even at about 80% of capacity, which and capacity is defined as running two shifts at full speed five days a week. So, you know, if you're below that, uh, you may not be making money at that factory. And, and there are too many factories, uh, that have been in that situation. He thought consolidation was important and also consolidation was important because it would give more scale to things like electric vehicles, to things like self-driving, to things like mobility businesses that may involve car sharing and so forth. And, and, you know, the more scale you can get on that, the lower cost you can have, uh, the more comfortable margins you can have, the better you do in downturns and so forth. And you don't, you know, face these crises and downturns where automakers are on the verge of bankruptcy, uh, as we've seen in the past, or even go into bankruptcy, as we saw the last time around. I mean, he felt in general that this was a very important thing for F- FCA to um, to pursue. And, and, you know, in the 10 years or so since the, the Fiat and Chrysler merger, uh, they have you know, had to sort of triage their cash. They needed to pay down debt. Uh, what they did was invest in the most profitable products, Jeeps, pickup trucks, things like that, uh, luxury vehicles, uh, and, and to generate cash flow so that they could sort of stabilize the business and then look to things like future technologies and so forth. And the result is now their debt is down. Um, you know, their profits have been good, but but they're behind on things like electric cars and so forth. Uh, whereas Peugeot has done quite well, um, with small cars, with electric vehicles, and so forth, and and so this gives uh, FCA some of that technology. It gives them what they need to be compliant in Europe um, going forward with the with the tightening emissions regulations. They'll they'll be able to figure that out with Peugeot, uh, which which was going to be an expensive problem for them uh, by you know twenty twenty two or so. Uh, so they have that. They get that, and and. You know, they they get uh, also there are some regional specific things. Um, you know, Fiat uh, sells small cars in Southern Europe, among other things, and, the, and those cars have not been very profitable. Fiat has FCA has said they're going to go to slightly larger cars that have slightly larger margins, but sharing architectures and engines and so forth with Peugeot to do that, uh, you know, where you, where you develop the underpinnings of a car and you make a Peugeot flavored car that you sell in, in, you know, maybe France and the Netherlands and places like that. And then a Fiat, uh, car that you sell in Italy and Spain, uh, where the brand has traditionally been strong. Uh, there are lots of opportunities for things like that really around the world. Uh, where the deal is weak is in China. Neither of these companies are big players in China. So we remain, we await, uh, word of what they're planning to do there. Okay, John, I want to kind of zoom back out again, kind of look at the auto industry as a whole. Uh, you know, we've mentioned this this major consolidation between uh, you know Fiat, Chrysler, and Peugeot. That's going to make the fourth largest uh, automaker um, in the world. Uh, we've talked about labor uh, labor conflicts uh, when it comes to closing factories. Uh, when you look out into next year, into 2020, what are you going to be following in this industry, and what 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 should investors be paying most attention to? Well, on a on a sort of industrial level scale, um, you know, how well does this merger go? Because there may be more to follow. Uh, you know, we've all kind of been holding our breath, wondering if a wave of consolidation would happen in autos, and you know, we've seen some small moves, but this is this is this is a big one, and we may see more. Uh, you know, we may see Renault and Nissan, you know, 
become even closer than they already are, for instance. Uh, there, there are some players we look at like BMW and, and Honda where they're, they're big companies. Now, they're profitable, but they, they might do better if they were bigger companies. Uh, but they're, they're, of course, with, with every company you can point to, well, this is a reason they don't want to do it and so forth. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves uh, if the Fiat Chrysler Peugeot merger is successful. Um, and starts paying benefits, and if everybody seems happy. Uh, it was something of a surprise to the industry a decade ago that the Fiat and Chrysler merger was successful. They did a very good job with it. Uh, that's one thing I'll be watching. Uh, another thing we'll all be watching, of course, is just the level of auto sales around the globe. Uh, you know, as weakness shows up, as I said earlier in the show, it's it's very late in the cycle. Uh, we'll, we'll also be watching, uh, obviously, consumer adoption of the electric vehicles. There's a wave of electric vehicles that uh, a few of them have come to market this year, more are coming next year. Uh, how well are they selling? What kind of prices are they getting? Uh, you know, how are our friends at Tesla doing? Um, because there have been some issues there. How are they doing in China and so forth? Uh, China's market is another wild card. It has slumped. Um, most of the global automakers are reporting lower profits from China, uh, except in luxury. Uh, that's another thing we'll be watching. And and also, always the question, does anybody manage to bring an electric vehicle taxi fleet out? <laughs> you know, Waymo, Waymo's got a few vehicles running around in Arizona uh, without drivers on a very, very test basis with their, with their sort of car sharing thing. Um, you know, we know work continues at, at GM's cruise subsidiary toward a similar goal, um, which they want to deploy in places like San Francisco and so forth soonish. We don't know how soonish. Uh, there are other players, including some that are kind of in stealth mode, that may come into this. Um, we don't know how all that's going to play out, but that will. If anybody manages to do it, that will be very exciting in 2020 to watch that and see how that goes. If 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 this is, you know, something that gets widespread consumer adoption, if it's if it's profitable and so on. Yeah, John, I think I think it's going to be a very exciting year next year. When it, when you look at the auto industry as a whole, this is a, a business that, you know, over time has been very incremental year over year, but we're seeing, you know, technological shifts, uh, you know, really forcing big step change moves like these big mergers and we're, you know, converting our whole line over over to EVs. So that really makes it an exciting time uh, to be following this industry and uh, always exciting to have you on to uh, to share your knowledge of it. Thanks, John. Thank you. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For John Rosevere, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!